Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is a podcast talking about 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. Volume 4, the possible final volume, is the 1980s, and this is episode 80, The Thing by John... Well, sorry, to to fully quote the title card, John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, my name is Matt Waters. I'm joined by Ben Phillips. Ben, how is it going? I'm warm and I'm tired because I was mm. out till 2am last yeah. night drinking cocktails. Okay. I mean, some of our finest work has come when you've been horrifically ill, horrifically hungover, on, truly on death's door. <laughs> I'm uh, feeling punchy today. Right. Like we're talking about... <laughs> all right, I'm not going to be too hyperbole, mm-hmm. but this might be the best movie we've ever covered. Wow. Okay. Um, I, cannot, I, I cannot go that far with you, but it is... Fucking excellent. <laughs> I, I fucking love this movie. This is like in my top 10 movies of all time. Yeah. Uh, I was just trying to think like what other movies have we covered that are in that. Like we haven't done The Matrix. Um, mm. So that doesn't make it like social networks in my 10 of all time. But like yeah. this, this thing fucking rips. It's a movie I can put on like whenever I like. And it mm. was like, it was weird. So like, obviously last year I did a deep, deep, deep dive into John Carpenter. I watched every single one of his movies, including like TV movies that he'd done and all these little bits and pieces. And the thing was kind of the only one that I held in high regard and watching them all in a sequence, I was just kind of like, oh no, this guy fucking rips. Like I'd obviously seen an awful lot of those movies, but they always kind of like when I watched them, they always felt like, oh, these are just kind of like fun yeah. genre riffs or like they're fun little like things but like when you just see the almighty power of this guy working at the peak of his abilities and this thing is kind of like the pinnacle of that it's just an an unassailable career yeah i mean we talked when we did oceans 11 possibly regrettably who knows we did the addenda maybe you can choose for yourself what comes off the list um we talked about how soderbergh had just this phenomenal work rate in terms of number of projects he spat out for us to choose from in the 2000s. But the the level of quality and output that Carpenter has in the 80s is fucking insane. You have The Fog, Escape from New York, obviously, obviously the thing, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, and They Live. Some of those, you know, not as good as others, but, like, to have that many movies and that many good movies, like, there are, like, three movies there that I would consider putting on the list, but the thing, obviously, stands above all. Truly incredible, like, you know, again, I don't think we're going to get to the 70s, but Halloween, like, you know, what he did for Halloween is fucking incredible. A shame that, you know, he retires from movie-making Basically, in the, in I mean, the very early two thousands, or, or no, he did. He did have like one last one. He did. He does Ghost of Mars, which is obviously kind yeah, of yeah, like yeah. later Carpenter, which is like big, trashy, yeah, more fun than it gets credit for. I will say, absolutely. But like, it's it's vastly different to kind of his early stuff. And he does mm. the Ward, which that was the I one. Think is, yeah. The Ward is like one of his worst movies. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. such a it's such a shrug of a movie for a man who invented the. The modern slasher, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, with with Halloween and like as you said, like his his run from like 1976 to to 1994, if you exclude Memoirs of an Invisible Man, is is just <laughs> hit 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 like yeah, it's just it's genuine. just great 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 stuff. And the fucked up part thing about John Carpenter directing and making movies isn't even the thing he's best at. 
<laughs> like an incredible composer. Um, I, you know, if you don't, if you have not stumbled upon them, check out his um, Lost Themes series. It's just a bunch of music he's made for various stuff that never got used. And it's just hours of fucking synth glory. Um, and I just love to shove them on all the time. And nowadays he just sort of just gets blazed and tweets about video games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's a huge video game fan. He loves the Assassin's Creed games, of course. Which is funny for like, it's just funny for this guy to have been such an unpretentious filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Like everything is super stripped down, and like he makes comments that like the reason why he scores all his work is because like no one else is cheap enough <laughs> and good enough to do what he needs them to he do. He called Steven Spielberg pretentious, and we've talked already about how Spielberg is kind of this really just basic. Like, impeccable fundamentals, but, like, he is not... He's making, like, easily communicable stuff. And for Carpenter to then call him pretentious, it's great. If Spielberg does something flashy, you're not going to notice that he's doing something flashy, is is the thing with Spielberg. Like, Spielberg has some of the most complex oneers in all of cinema. But he does them in such a way that, like, you don't notice them. And then Carpenter's just like, oh, no, it's too flashy for me. Yeah, I... I stumbled across it last night. Um, I mean, it's probably already been forgotten. It went viral of, of it's Carpenter giving an interview either just before or just after Halloween came out. And he's just sitting there like, no, I don't care for anyone who's currently working. I only like old filmmakers. Robert Altman's fucking trash. George Lucas is, is not a good filmmaker. Spielberg is pretentious. <laughs> he just gives no fucks and he will just say what he thinks. God bless him. Yeah, and like, I mean, yeah, as you said, like all he does is like talk about video games and then like take paychecks for new Halloween movies and then does some of the music for him. It's like, yeah, yeah. fucking, fucking get paid, get high, and do what you want to do. Like you, you changed the game in so many ways, and like he's he's kind of the ultimate example of the director who never got credit when he was at his peak. Like it feels like he is a director who the entirety of his fame and kind of like being held up as a as a one of the great filmmakers is from video stores and yeah. that nerd culture burging in the 90s like and the thing is kind of like emblematic of that is that this movie was not a hit was not a commercial was not commercial or critical hit when it came out no. and all of that is being found out through like Fangoria magazine and, and like these these publications <laughs> coming out years and years down the line you know, we talk about, you know, look at all these giant movies this guy made, so many contenders for the list. Uh, many of those did not make money or were not well received, and it, it, it's the time after where you're like, oh my god, look at this fucking movie. You know, it, if it's it's very similar to The Shining, you know, like panned on release and then considered the greatest horror movie ever. The Thing might be the greatest sci-fi movie ever. Like, it it gets all messy, you know, is this horror, is this sci-fi, it's kind of both. Whatever it is, it fucking fucks. You know, we like to talk about relationships with movies. Like, I don't know when I first saw this, to be honest with you. I mean, it, it's... I feel it's just at some point you sort of try and get into horror. Into horror, um, You discover John Carpenter in general, and then you just stumble upon the thing, and it arrives as this perfect little sci-fi monster baby. I don't know if you have a more eloquent history with it than no, I do. But... not at all. It's just, it is one of those, like, all-time great movies, and I think this is, like, one of those ones that I watched in that perfect way, where it was, like, I knew the reputation of this movie, and then I saw it was playing on, like, four movies, or whatever, at, like, <laughs> 11.53, and I'm like, right, let's fucking stay up till two o'clock in the morning to watch this, because 
the other thing that's kind of incredible about John Carpenter's work is that he almost never goes over two hours. Yeah. Like, he is a director who is... He like, respects my fucking time. <laughs> I will not waste your time. And like, I think it's very <laughs> telling that possibly one of my least favorite movies that he does is the television movie Elvis, which mm. also stars Kurt Russell. Oh, man. In. I love uh, that he cast Kurt Russell because one of his reasons was he wanted someone who wouldn't complain about the cold. <laughs> He's like, ah, my friend isn't going to complain to me, is he? He's just going to be polite about it. But yeah, like he makes a three-hour television Elvis movie, which is just... Mm kind of like a slog and it's like yeah Carpenter, yeah Carpenter knows like you make a movie kind of like 90 to 100 minutes and you don't fuck with people's time yeah absolutely I don't really know when to say this I'm just going to say it up front it is fucking ludicrous no one has ever written him a blank check to make an alien a predator or a both movie like he would crush that quite frankly and, he like, would but he also like I don't think he'd want to do it he'd I'm sure like, he wouldn't but fuck off with that I want to because like you, there's a whole list of like movies that he wants to make mm. and like every single time he gets close someone pulls out or doesn't give enough money and like he's got this run of movies where like he's doing them for a three million dollar budget and then coming back with stuff like Prince of Darkness and you're like you made this for three million dollars this like obviously it's like a single location but there's just some shit in his movies that you're like Jesus Christ he is he is a director who works best when he's like up against the wall. Yeah. Which is one of those sad things where like when you give him a budget, you end up with something like Escape from LA, which <laughs> is a fun, campy I enjoy both of those movies. Um like <laughs> you know, not realizing I guess I probably saw them after I started playing Metal Gear Solid and like <laughs> you have the character of Snake with an eye patch, who is explicitly designed after Snake Plissken from those movies, and then at one point, Snake from Metal Gear uses the alias Plissken, and it's like, Kojima is not a subtle human being. Kojima is being, <laughs> currently, just to date this, is currently being framed for the assassination of the Japanese Prime Minister, so that's fun. Incredible what stuff. A world we, what a world we live in. Yeah. Um, he made a whole ass video game about how you shouldn't you know, the dangers of digital misinformation. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah like, um, like, like, Escape from LA has, like, one of the all-time great bad CGI moments <laughs> of, like, them surfing on the, the fucking tidal wave. And... Uh, I, yeah, he, he has a problem solver. He's a creative guy who who is like, you know, how do we get around this kind of thing? I mean, I mean, so, I mean, so, so first, a little bit on the thing. So, mm. obviously, this movie is a sort of remake of the thing from another world the 1951 movie to the point where like they literally recreate how they did the title sequence for that movie which is literally just setting a bin bag on fire behind a bright light yeah <laughs> like like that's the kind of thing that we're talking about here is that like this movie is a all-time standard setter for prosthetics and monster designs and when it comes down to it for their title sequence they're like Oh, we can set a bin bag on fire behind a bright light and show the title kind of like bleeding in and it's fucking incredible because his back's up against the wall and he can't mm. hire some design firm to come up with like some cool credit sequence yeah. uh, so it's just kind of like three guys in like a back room and whatever and it's why I've got this kind of like never ending respect for the way that John Carpenter works um, yeah. and, yeah. And, and it's similar to you think about the context of when this movie comes out and this movie comes out the same month and from the same studio as E.T. Mm -hmm. And that is credited for why it didn't do so good. 
Yeah, because E.T. is like, at that, it becomes the highest grossing movie of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's an incredibly like positive movie. As we said last week on a Red to the Lost Ark episode, it is the Spielberg movie. Like That is the one that people associate him, with him the most. Mm. And then this thing comes out and it's just like... It's like this Whoa. bleak commentary on human nature. <laughs> you know, sad ending and like very gross to look at. Um, oh yeah, I mean, just imagine being like, if you had no, like, obviously trailers are completely different now, and if you cut a trailer for the thing, you're like, doing the red band, and you're like, teasing the fuck out of some of these designs but if you are just a a person who's just like, oh, the thing, I like the 1951 movie, I'm gonna go fucking see this thing and then you're like, 20 minutes in, a dog's face peels itself off and like <laughs> collapses in on itself yeah. I mean, again, like, you know, we will never get this era back where stuff could just kind of drop out of nowhere, you know nothing about it, and it just fucks you up. I have seen some trailers for older movies where they do kind of just give the plot away, but I mean, it, it feels like a requirement these days to, like, accidentally or not, like, reveal too much in your trailer so that you get the hype cycle going and all that, but... I also wonder how much of these, like, old trailers are they actually from the time, or are they Mm. from, like, repertory screenings later? Like, I don't actually know the history of the movie trailer, and, like, when do we get to the point we are in, like, the 90s and the 2000s, where, like, every movie's got a trailer that you can go look up and you can watch the... I mean, the most famous one I can think of is Phantom Menace, but like even that's got to be too late. Matrix, I think, had pretty big trailers. I mean, the Phantom Menace trailer is obviously infamous for like yeah. spoiling the fucking <laughs> double lightsaber, which like <laughs> that that should be a top ten reveal of all time. Yeah, in that would have blown people's minds if they'd just done that. And you know, that one's also famous for like people were buying tickets to go see whatever they would watch the trailer and then they would all just leave kind of thing. And and it, you know, the hilarious that it ended up getting the reception it did because it was like the most anticipated movie of all time, probably based on those trailers. But yeah, it feels like something that comes in the kind of late nineties. Um, Again, it's, it's, it's the, the onset of the internet and it's the onset mm-hmm. of like film discussion being kind of open. It isn't three nerds in a video store. Yeah, like recommending you what to watch. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, you couldn't you couldn't like pull apart frames and like you know shot for shot it, and you couldn't post a YouTube video that ten million people watch. It was all just like you know, oh that you know you could maybe rewind and, and, and watch the fucking trailer again if you wanted, but it's not like you could tell anyone but your friends. So yeah, yeah. I mean that's I mean that's why the nineties is this huge boon for film nerds because like before that it's like until you have a way of being able to take these movies home with you. You're reliant on maybe them being replayed on cable, maybe them playing in a cinema near you. Yeah. And if you're not kind of interested in, in either of those avenues, you can't watch what you want to watch when you want to watch it. Yeah. And and as we said, like this is a movie that massively benefits from being passed around and kind of like being raised from the ground up as a cult hit from yeah. video stores. I mean, so like on that note, I mean, it, <laughs> just spoilers for next week as well. This is not. A great year for our picks and making money. So instead, for for this week, we're going to talk, we're going to set the context for 1982 in terms of what is critically acclaimed. And I assume your list is based on now, not then, because as we said, this was released to poor reviews. Oh yeah, this this movie is kind of like, we, we hinted at it on our Shining episode, like this movie potentially even more so than that movie is just completely fucking shredded by by the critical establishment like everyone is just kind of going like what the fuck is this why is this so dark why is this so awful i want to go spend time with my good boy et 
but like the other movie that kind of got a similar response uh, from this year that is the the highest acclaimed movie that we're definitely not discussing next week is uh, Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's going to be a shame that we don't discuss it next like, week. It really it? is going to be a shame. Uh, <laughs> but you've also got Fanny and Alexander, E.T., The Thing, Tootsie, Passion. Uh, like, like it's it's kind of like, you can tell this is a just fucking fantastic year for, like, genre film. Mm. Um, and, like, there's a lot of people that hold up the, like, the summer of 1982 as being this, like, all-time great summer for blockbusters. Yeah, like you, you look at kind of the stuff that's coming out, and it's stuff like Star Trek: Wrath of Khan, mm. like, like like a Tron is coming out this year. Like it's this huge, huge kind of like shift in like Poltergeist as well. Big, big horror movies, big like sci-fi movies, like lots of things that people are going to latch onto kind of like ten years down the road. Like they're exactly yeah. the kind of genres that people want to be to be kind of like hold up at home and watch. I mean, and- it, it's stuff that is now we see it referenced by people who grew up with this shit and they pour it into their own work, uh, you know, like Tron inspired and Blade Runner inspired and, and the thing inspired and so on and so on and so on. Um, you know, like stranger things, we, we, we talked about it already, but like, you know, there is an undeniable sense of John Carpenter at, pr- at play in, you know, Especially obviously, obviously a tamer version. Oh, the score absolutely like from second one, of the very first episode of like the the opening titles for Stranger Things incredible very clearly inspired by John Carpenter right down to the font work to be honest I mean it it feels like the kind of thing that like I wouldn't be surprised to hear if the Duffer Brothers were like we want Carpenter to direct an episode of the final season or Mm. we want him to come in and like guest score an episode or something like that like it feels like that's the kind of thing that like if I had a bucket list and I was making that show I'd be like I want to yeah, get yeah, someone, yeah. someone from that era yeah. to do something on this show, and, and obviously they've had like actors appear on the show who are obviously like big in this era, but yeah. like <laughs> Carpenter feels like, yeah. oh, this is a slam dunk. Stephen King is a slam dunk. Mm-hmm. Like these are the mm-hmm. two that like you you pull for. Yeah, and like if I didn't make it clear enough when I said I just listened to like unused themes by John Carpenter, I honestly like that shit is right up my alley. This kind of dystopian synth, this horror synth, like all that kind of stuff. Immediately, my jam. You you, you even hit a a note of that, and I'm just immediately let my ears perk up, and I'm I'm invested in your project. (laughs) Have you seen a video of him redoing the Halloween theme on, like, the Nintendo Switch piano? (laughs) No, but I will. (laughs) He he basically, like, starts playing it, and it's just like, this is a piece of shit, like, why would anyone use this? Because it's just this fucking cardboard piano that they they made. Oh, the the fucking, um, the the Labo. Labo, Labo. yeah. Oh, gosh, what a piece of... Uh, Like, we talk all this, like, high talk about, like, how good his themes are, and obviously his work on Halloween is is unparalleled, Mm. but the the theme of Halloween is a top ten movie theme of all time. For sure. And then this movie doesn't have a score from John Carpenter. I, like, I mean, look, it kind of does. Yeah. <laughs> like, he hires Ennio Morricone. Who Flies is, to Italy to meet with Morricone, begs him to do his movie. <laughs> who is obviously, like, at this point, famous for spaghetti westerns mm-hmm. and, like, some of the all-time great. Like, Ario Morricone is obviously the person who does, like, Fistful of Dollars and all, all those movies are, like, all him. Uh, his score to The Good, Bad and the Ugly is obviously just fucking incredible. And so... Carpenter's just like, right, this is going to be my one time working with someone else. And then because Carpenter is such like an opinionated creative person, mm-hmm. he just kind of makes Morricone do a, a theme that sounds like John Carpenter music. Yeah, like, 
he Morricone basically has said in in or or said in the years afterwards, like I honestly don't know why he got me to come and do it when he just clearly wanted to do it himself, and like he wouldn't even show him footage of the movie, so he was just making generic stuff. He made like a he made piano music and he made synth music, and Carpenter chose the synth music, and then Carpenter goes away and adds his own stuff to it as well, and like. It feels like he went and got him because he's just a massive fan. Like I think he has said that part of what part of the way he got him to do the movie is he told him that like they played his music at his wedding. I mean, and that's the other thing is that Carpenter has come out in multiple interviews and said that like his dream was always to do a western. Mm-hmm. Like every single time he's like making these like science fiction and horror movies and and all the all the such. Like in the background, he's like, I really want to make a fucking western. I really want to make a western. <laughs> And he doesn't end up making a movie that's even like slightly Western inspired until he gets to Vampires, which is mm. like fine, but it's just funny that he's. I like Vampires. I mean, it's not it's not high art, it's not but top, I, I... it's not top tier, but it's it's goofy fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's but... got sort of Western sensibilities here and there, but I mean, he's oh, very much in 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 the wrong space for it. But yeah, it's just very funny that like, you know, he is so known for his scores, and then the one movie that we're covering by him is one that he... I mean, his music is in this film, but, like, yeah, I mean, it's all credited to Ennio Morricone, and, like, most of it isn't used. It gets put out as a soundtrack anyway, just because it's, like, you know, fucking Ennio Morricone made us some fucking music, we're gonna put it out. (laughs) And then then it gets nominated for a worst musical score, Razzie. (laughs) (sighs) Ridiculous. I don't understand what was going on here, where, like, did the Razzies just not... Were they just not able to handle the concept of synth? Like the Razzies were music. just the Razzies at this point were literally just. I mean, to be honest, they've always been this, but they've always been kind of like a reflection on the worst parts of culture, mm-hmm. and they just kind of like would follow. Like they didn't have any opinions on their own. They just kind of like pick on actors and yeah. like would like follow along with the critical consensus. So, like The Shining is nominated for like worst movie, and this is like the thing is like worst picture, and it's just like guys have some backbone. Like they're not, yeah. they're more willing to court controversy than they are to actually like. Or not even controversy. They they just do these like really milquetoast things, and like you end up like their list of movies that are the worst movies of the year aren't even really like the worst movies of the year. Like they're just kind of like bad movies that no one saw ultimately. Mm. And then I mean, and obviously like they've done some like horrific shit, like the the, the Bruce Willis thing this year yeah. or was was awful. And then they've also got like let's nominate Schwarzenegger for Conan the Barbarian in the same year that this is going on. It's like, sure, like, Conan isn't Arnie at his best, but it's the birth of a fucking movie star. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's stupid. But, yeah, I mean, that's, and, that's and also, best. like, I will say that the, the score for the thing, there's obviously some, like, great moments, but it kind of, it kind of fades away at a certain point, or, oh, like, it becomes God. so subtle that, like... My, I, my partner, we watched this last year, because this was one of the few Carpenter movies that she wanted to watch when mm-hmm. we were, and I was watching all of them last year. So she did, like, Halloween, and she did They Live, and she did this one. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was out, like, when I was watching it, so I was, like, curled up at home alone with the lights off, and then she, like, <laughs> came in and just kind of, like, drunkenly sat down on the sofa and was just like, there's not been any music for, like, ten minutes. Yeah. And, like... Like it's it's still fucking tense because obviously she walks in during like the blood testing scene and like there is no score in that entire scene. It's literally just the sound of like yeah. the flamethrower and then yeah. uh, it's, and it's then the chaos. Fucking, yeah, like the Carpenter is a master of like, and that's what makes him so impressive is that he's really is a master of sound. Like he knows mm-hmm. what the what the scene should sound like and whether or not the thing that it sounds like should be silence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, I feel yeah. like you get 
like you start off with the synth, like the pounding slow synth, that, and then you you know you get towards the more traditional like strings for tension, and then the music kind of is just sort of it, it, there's either none or very little for like most of the rest of the movie, but still like as you say the sound in general like has this huge impact so i mean like just for some context like this this is obviously um it's based on a novella by john campbell jr who goes there from like the 30s i think and there was a previous attempt at an adaptation in 1951 it was very loosely adapted so the producers of what would become this version, you know, they were like, ah, oh, we should make a version that like plays it more straight, is more faithful to it. They spend, you know, they start work on it in the mid seventies. They cycle through directors. Like everyone has, you know, no one has a very good take. You know, you get Bill Lancaster of of Bad News Bears fame. He 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 comes in and does his own script. And and Carpenter initially is like reluctant to do it. He's sort of like, I don't think I could top the original uh but he his interest is peaked around the concept of making the creature more uh of a presence uh yeah he, I mean, he I mean, obviously carpenter likes the original movie because the original movie is what is playing in mm. the, the the house in halloween <laughs> yeah. the entire final yeah, yeah, act yeah, yeah, is yeah. like they're watching the thing on television yeah 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 i think i think that that version is called like the thing that came in from uh, the, the, the thing from another world the thing from another world that's it sorry yeah and he you know he's talked about how like he was adamant he didn't want this to be a guy in a suit. He wanted like incredible effects and all that. So like the the idea of of doing that piques his interest. Um, he also, I think, the blood test scene you just mentioned. He said that was the exact scene that made him sign up for it. And we'll talk about that I think at great length at some point in the in the next few minutes. But yeah, um, Carpenter joins. Uh, as I said, like you know, he he gets his pal Kurt Russell involved. They primarily shoot in LA. They do a little bit of exterior stuff in Alaska. Um, a lot of the planned exterior stuff is cut for budgetary reasons. Um, you know, they, they give them $15 million for this. They wanted to give them even less than that. Famously, they set aside $200,000 for the effects, which would have been the most a Hollywood movie had ever spent on creature stuff. It balloons up to one point five million. <laughs> that is a hell of a talking your way up. Um, yeah, I, I mean, like we have to do a special shout out to Rob Bottin here, who mm-hmm. like he, he did himself some harm making it, but my god, is it incredible? <laughs> yeah, like he 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 does Star Wars, but then like his work with Carpenter is kind of like where he starts to come on. So he does uh, the Fog with Carpenter, and then he does this movie, and like yeah. I mean, this movie makes him like a Hollywood legend forever. Yeah. And that's even before. And I think he, he was back. like twenty-one when he did this as well. Yeah, he's fucking disgustingly young. Yeah. Uh, like he was born in nineteen fifty-nine, so yeah, he would have been <laughs> kind of like twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two. Yeah. When he's making this movie, and yeah. and he's, he's like just... he's sleeping on the Universal lot and and stuff. You know, like he he just works on this basically for a solid year, takes no days off, is sleeping on set. I think he gets pneumonia at some point. You know, you you have people stepping in to help him um i can't remember the name of uh, stanley someone i think uh did the dog scene and then yes. refused credit because you know he's just like well this guy's fucking incredible i don't i don't want to share credit with him like so he ends up in the special thanks um but yeah i mean yeah it's stan, stan, stan winston, that does, stan winston. That does that and obviously stan winston is someone who's done like aliens jurassic park predator yeah. like like arguably a more 
long-lasting career yeah. than yeah. than Rob Bottin. But like Rob Bottin, like after this, does RoboCop. He does Base yeah. Instinct. He does Seven. He does Mission Impossible. He does Fight Club. Yeah. He kind of like disappears after Misdeeds, then comes back in 2014 and does Joffrey's death maker, <laughs> yeah. in Game of Thrones. <laughs> Like, which yeah. is again, like, a just absolutely incredible piece of like makeup work. Just that, like, yeah. slowly turning purple. And like, it's, it, it's it is fucked up how good this movie looks. Like, f- like forty years later, and there are movies that don't look this good. Like, my partner was like, "How did they do that?" Yeah. <laughs> like the the first reaction most people have when watching this movie is saying, "Like, why are they trying to kill the dog?" And then uh-huh. the second reaction they have is, "How the fuck are they doing these special effects?" Yeah, yeah, and like you know, you've got you've got puppetry, you've got animatronics, you know, you've got uh, you've got some stop motion that Carpenter hated, so he barely used any of it and opted for a fifty person puppet, which you know, <laughs> good for the crew. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's insane, and like today, well, so. <laughs> Let's let's use this as the opportunity. Uh, obviously, this is hugely influential. You get spin-off things of all varieties. You get books, comics, a video game, uh, and a prequel. Yeah, so, so there is there is a prequel movie which is <laughs> all CGI. All CGI. Yeah, so they make some like really incredible practical effects that have kind of never been seen. But then Universal kind of comes in and goes like, no, 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 we need to change all this to CGI. Like similar to like how it, it's a really prescient sign of like where hollywood is going where like you have these people who are like really fucking desperate to do something cool and gnarly that throws back to the 80s and the mm. studio goes like mm, yeah but we can't tweak it like you're <laughs> locked into what you had on set if you if you do this and like the cast of the movie is great like it's written by the guy who wrote arrival the director kind of hasn't really done much since but like it's it's kind of cool that you've got mary elizabeth winstead kind of like cut parlaying off of scott pilgrim into being an action lead yeah. and then kind of like getting shoved back down again and like it takes her a decade to kind of like get back up to where she needs to be in this it is um, kind of weird they just called it the thing <laughs> like... it's utterly bizarre like it's the to the point where like they they did a recent re-release i don't know if it's the same in the u.s but in the uk they did a recent re-release of the thing and they just put this as a special feature on, <laughs> on the right wow. like you bought the thing cool have another copy yeah. of the thing so is <laughs> so is the, i haven't seen the prequel um is it basically the Norwegians, or yeah, is it's it... just the Norwegians? So basically, right. like you find out like how the guy ended up like frozen yeah, to death. Yeah, yeah, you find yeah. out like what the corpse corpses burned was. You get to find out more about the the the, the helicopter pilot and stuff yeah. like that. So but, does it like, just end because... with like the thing and a dog running away and the guy getting in a helicopter and then you roll credits? Or it does, <laughs> but like you also have Mary Elizabeth Winstead as the lead, and so she oh. kind of has things to do around the outskirts of it as well that kind of like how is her norwegian accent <laughs> she's american okay fair enough there are norwegians but the only norwegians are like the ones that we see it, right. it's like they kind of get right because like it's it's elizabeth winstead joel edgerton uh adwell Eknoye, Bajé, okay. um and then like everyone else is kind of like a, a norwegian and then like uh, obviously like christoph hivju is like one of those guys in his pre Game of Thrones, yeah. uh, in the pre Game of Thrones era, I can't remember if he's like one of the the guys left at the end, uh, or whether or not he's killed off early. But yeah, like it's just it kind of because there's a blank slate to work with yeah. on that movie where like you just have to hit the kind of like the three beats that they see mm-hmm. in the in the in the original movie, they can kind of play around with it. But it's still very much one of those things where like it's just really hobbled by yeah. a parlaying off one of the greatest movies of all time mm-hmm. and b 
having to again you're kind of like you're railroaded into like well they can't destroy the thing no it will like, yeah exactly it has to win it has to escape and obviously like that's part of why the ending to this movie is so good is that you mm. don't know who's won this and yeah we'll talk about that yeah and then, <laughs> and then you have the video game which is a sequel um, right. and like carpenter's in it and endorses the game and it's kind of like one of those early early games it's got some like really cool mechanics like it's got like a um a trust mechanic because obviously like oh. any any person around you could be the thing oh wow uh, that's very <laughs> that's very ambitious i honestly i'm like no one talks about this it must be pure fucking trash but i, I think it's actually like relatively impressive for 2002 i don't think anyone okay. is like one of the greatest games of the era but like you have people like eric walpaw who obviously went on to yeah. write for for valve reviewing it for GameSpot and going like I'm not sure the trust fear system is kind of like all there, but like, but that, that like knowing where games went in the decade after that, where you have like morality systems and, and that kind of thing, it feels very like cutting edge for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like this, the thing feels like an IP that someone should do for mm. this kind of game. Like the idea, yeah. and and to to kind of preface some of the stuff that we're going to talk about as we talk about the actual movie in general, like the beauty of the thing, the movie is it's nigh on impossible to track the progress of the thing through <laughs> the, I, the cast. Like, people have attempted, yeah. and they've gone, like, I think this person gets got at this point. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, that I made that as, like, a major note, actually, and so we'll, we'll come back on that. But, like, just, just very briefly, I would say that they did make a The Thing game later, and it's called Prey. Um, yes. <laughs> not to be confused with the Predator movie, Prey. Let's fucking talk about The Thing. So, I fucking love this movie. They're not fucking around. They open with a goddamn UFO. Um, <laughs> like, who gives a shit? Here's the UFO. I feel if you make it today, you reveal their aliens later. And he's like, no, fuck it. There's a UFO. Shut up. Um, and then obviously you've got, you know, the dog. And like, you know, it does just confirm that the Norwegians are just pure evil trying to shoot this dog. <laughs> this, this adorable dog. A terrible shot. Blows up his own helicopter by accident <laughs> afterwards. You know, the Americans like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> just staring I mean, at him dumbfounded. There's just this like, cute dog that's just like pouring at them, and then these Norwegians who are like shouting at them in Norwegian, throwing grenades around. Like, Shoot one bottles. of the Americans. <laughs> yeah, and you're just sort of like, okay. I mean, I mean, it's obviously, you know, you know, you read it as like, oh, well, these people are clearly evil if they would try and shoot a dog. But like, the intention is, if something must be really fucked up if they're trying to shoot a dog. I will um, say, I think the biggest idiot in this scene, though, is Gary. Like, mm. I understand he's got a tactical advantage, but he fucking smashes a window in the middle of fucking Antarctica. <laughs> I know, and really badly, too. He's just, like, clumsily smashing out his window. Yeah, for sure. He's an idiot in general, and they sort of dunk on him. He's like, look, he got to do his, like, big action thing. But he does have the best line of the movie. Yeah? Well, I don't want to spend the rest of this fucking night tied to this <laughs> fucking couch. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. There are some pretty good ones. There I think are. Fuck You Too is, is pretty good. <laughs> we get that, and then, you know, you get the creature around, I don't know, what, 25 minutes? Something yeah, like that? Yeah, like, like, the dog is just kind of, like, butting around, and there's yeah. some, like, creepy moments that happen around the edges where, like, people are kind of, like, yelp from being nipped by the dog, or, like, mm. the dog creeps into someone's room and then the silhouette turns, but the silhouette isn't of anyone who's actually... Yeah. In the cast, it's like the set dresser or something was just like a silhouette that Carpenter liked, but it mm -hmm. adds to that thing that I said beforehand, where like you just don't know, yeah, who's been infected. Yeah, when. you you're just spending like 
15, 20 minutes with just this group of people on this remote base, getting a feel for what life is like. Things are a little bit like, hmm, what's... What might yeah, be like happening? some of them. Some of them have gone off to go examine what's gone on with the Norwegians. Some of them are hanging around, being mad that they're playing Stevie Wonder. <laughs> like yeah. it, it's just, yeah, and it's just, you just get a feel for like you know, it's having to watch VHS recordings because obviously they don't get TV in Antarctica. It's like a lot of cards. It's a lot of. I mean, computer chess. <laughs> cheating bitch. Um, the only woman in the movie is the voice of the chess computer, and she is also the voice of uh, Batman the Animated Series' Catwoman, uh, Adrian, Adrian Barbo, indeed. Who was, at the time, married to John Carpenter. Indeed. Uh, I love that that's the only woman in the movie, and she's called a cheating bitch and has a cocktail poured in her. But anyway, um, for me, there are three tent poles of the fucking movie, and it's... One is obviously the fucking creature itself, and you yes. know, we'll talk about the effects. Two is Kurt Russell is devastatingly handsome, and three oh, is my God. the sense of isolation and the general, like, they're all just getting cabin fever and going insane. But, I mean, should we just acknowledge that nobody has ever looked as hot as Kurt Russell does in this movie? <laughs> just fucking incredible. Like, I mean, <laughs> Kurt Russell in general is yeah. an attractive man, of and course. obviously has birthed an attractive son. Indeed, who, who we have talked about in other things, but Indeed. like, yeah, this era of Kurt Russell, where it's like, use cars into like the thing into Big Trouble in China, like Escape from New York, is just a devastatingly handsome man. Yeah. Um, the size of that hair, the size of that beard, in combo with, with just that general sense of swag, and we talked about it like in in the Indiana Jones episode, like. There's no scene where he's like shirtless and absolutely fucking ripped. I have no idea what kind of shape he was in. He's in the fucking Antarctic. Of course he's not going to take his clothes off. But he's just like some dude. He's a bit rough and ready. And he's just incredibly handsome. And like, yeah, he he has no like special skills. He's the pilot. But like he flies a helicopter like once. And he just spends the movie as just sort of general no-nonsense guy that takes charge because everyone's being hysterical. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he's... He is so good at anchoring this movie into what it needs to be. I mean, it's deeply funny, the idea that him and John Carpenter are, like, really close friends because, like, (laughs) politically, they're, like, completely diametrically opposed to each other. Oh, no, is Kurt Russell a hideous Republican? Kurt Russell's a massive um, libertarian. Oh, no. He's also one of those guys just, like, we shouldn't... I should just shut the fuck up about my opinions. Like, let people do what they want to do. Like, I don't give a fuck. I've got my opinions. You've got your opinions. I'm not going to let that impact on me. I'm like, Mm. okay, I, I wish more people who held your opinions were kind of more like you rather than... Yeah, I... Yeah, I'm not saying, like, I like libertarians or anything, but, like, if you're going to be on that side of the spectrum, I'd rather you were that than the full-on, like, (laughs) yeah, you know. People shouldn't need driving licenses. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Ron Ron Swanson, why not? And then Carpenter's a big old lefty, right? Yeah, Carpenter's a massive lefty. Good, good, good. Okay, but yeah, I mean, yeah, he's so handsome. He almost makes that ridiculous cowboy hat work. Nobody could have, but he gave it a damn good shot. But, you know, spending most of this movie... You know, with, with, with the goggles and the flamethrower. I, I also want to throw out there, like, like Keith David also devastatingly handsome mm, in this movie. Young, young Keith David. Young Keith my, David. My, my, What a hunk. And then you just know him <laughs> as this perpetually old this man. Is, this is his first credited I know. Film. He came from theatre, right? Yeah. yeah. And he broke his hand the day before and tried to just cover it up so they just don't show his left hand for the, for most of the movie. <laughs> but yeah, and like, you know, they... they 
the the you know he has this giant glorious beard does kurt russell and like it takes him a year to grow it and they're talking about not casting him and i'm like what if he just made himself look like this for no reason i mean you know, that's that's always a reason but um them just gradually adding more ice to this majestic beard as the movie goes on and by the end of it he just looks like fucking santa claus who he goes on to play decades later because he does, he um, does. <laughs> We will not speak of that. Um, but yeah, he's just he's just fucking great, isn't he? Like fucking Mac, like, oh, like one punching is... people and just captain action, right? Yeah. I mean Russell and Carpenter is kind of like the ultimate ideal of director actor kind of like collaboration because Russell works mm. in like all of the movies where like in this he's kind of like the quiet put upon person and then you've got like the hyper confident Snake Pliskin in Escape from New York yeah. and then you've got like him in Big Trouble in Little China, where like he is the emblematic ideal of like the brash-headed American who doesn't actually like <laughs> understand what's going on anywhere and is kind of like fucking things up for the actual competent people in that movie. Yeah. Like he he works in so many different genres and like yeah, it's it's funny to think that like he is obviously like he starts off as a like a Disney star and like isn't isn't there the rumbling that like is it him that's like the last words of at Walt Disney's mouth were like Kurt Russell. I haven't heard that, but <laughs> that would be incredible. I know that he loves to uh, like throw in Elvis impersonations, even in things he's not. It, like, isn't the rumor he is Elvis in um, Forrest yes, Gump? Yes, he played Elvis in Forrest Gump. He was the last word spoken by Walt Disney before he died. Not, like not Rosebud, then. Not Rosebud. No, it was it was Kurt Russell, and then obviously Kurt, Kurt Russell, Russell like leaves the Disney wheelhouse um, a little while later, and like I mean, he never ascends to kind of like triple a stardom but he's definitely someone who like when he shows up it feels like a big deal but then you've got things like he's got a fairly thankless role in the fast movies and he obviously plays like james gunn hires him to play ego in in guns of galaxy volume 2 to play star lord's dad always always a fun presence but like this this to me is like peak pinnacle yeah yeah like he he's a guy people enjoy seeing and it's birthed from stuff like this where he he just he spends this he has this run where he is just this like likable every man like the the character description for mac is just sort of like flies helicopters likes chess you know that's it like you know the the pay is good that kind of thing and like he just pours so much likability into it like you know he's not quippy really i mean he's got this couple of lines he's not like this hyper skilled guy he just he's just like a dude who is just kind of fumbling his way through the situation and like you know he does just straight up murder a dude like he is not this like completely morally virtuous and we'll, we'll get into the whole you know <laughs> murdering each other thing but yeah i i incredible in in like a movie where like you know we we know keith david we know um wilford brimley and stuff but like this is largely a cast of people who if we would have known them at the time, certainly they are not memorable names anymore. Um, yeah, like like you you make this movie nowadays, and like yes, they try and do it with the thing, but there's still like a couple of people who are like more or less known. Mm. But like imagine doing this nowadays and casting kind of like twelve complete unknowns to yeah. to play these characters. And I do think that kind of hurts it a little bit. Is like there are a couple who like you you they're very distinct and and you know them, um, but there are just truly a group of just random white dudes and i'm like who's this one again uh oh yeah okay and like if they had like more distinct personalities or they were like slightly more recognizable actors i might track the movements of the whole group a bit more but instead like you know there are like 
five that I'm like invested in and I know, and the rest are all just like cannon fodder. And like, I get that that's partially the point, but like, you know, in a world where like you care about all of them and you know one of them is a traitor, kind of. It's deeply funny to read like people like try and track down who gets infected when (laughs) and have them name, have them do the character names. I'm like, (laughs) oh, I'm supposed to know the character names for this movie? Yeah, it's Copper Thing and, and, and Dog Thing and Box Thing and. So yeah, that was the point I made. Uh, I, I made a note of is like, you can sort of kind of track it for the first, I don't know, 40 minutes. Let's say that. Like, I mean, there's some ambiguity about what the dog gets up to, but you know, you know, the dog is there and like, you know, that like a bit of it gets out maybe. And like, you know, you know yeah, that it's in the, the core. The dog thing and... is the, the thing that comes back at the end and it's kind of like grown yeah. absolutely massive underneath the floorboards when they try. Yeah. And you up. see when they're killing it, like a bit of it like jumps to the ceiling yeah. or whatever. And that's clearly the bit that, that has grown. But like, I really like the idea that for a while you can trace it as the audience, not as the characters. They're fucking oblivious. They're like fucking standing next to an autopsy. I love that. Like, part of why they get into trouble is that they want to keep some of it for scientific discovery rather than just burn it all, burn it all right now. But then there's a point where everybody loses it. We lose it, they lose it. You go quite a while without an actual sighting and you just descend into this fucking Lord of the Flies, like they're all going insane and killing each other thing. And I don't want to criticise it because it's basically a perfect sci-fi movie, but like you could imagine a world where they neatly killed off the whole creature in the first hour and then the entire second hour there is no creature but they are convinced there is and they are all just killing each other and I guess that's sort of The Shining um, and that's kind of where the ending sits with like it's completely unclear if there's more of it out there are they just going to freeze to death um, you know I, I think they filmed a version where they're rescued and they're all testing okay they wrote a version where like they're rescued but they're infected Carpenter hated both so they end up with this version where, like, they just ostensibly freeze to death to make sure it doesn't get out there. Maybe like, one of them has so it. Many, there's so many like, little hints in it as well. Yeah. Like, the moment when Child, like, takes a swig of the whiskey and it's mm. like, oh, you're not supposed to share drink. Like, is that, yeah, is that because yeah, yeah. Macready's had, had the thing? Or is it now that if Macready drinks from Child's thing, like, he's going to be infected? Like, yeah. the fact that, like, the way they shoot it, you can barely see... Mm. Content, like the, and that the, these two t- have hated each other throughout the whole movie like there's there's this big like you know dick swinging competition between them as the two sort of like big rough and ready guys and you know they have but their yeah, confrontations it, but I mean as like I say perfect ideology or like perfect ideal of how to do this kind of ambiguous ending where like you can chew on any bit of this scene and come to whatever conclusion you want to but we're never going to have a movie sequel featuring these actors we'll never know what the actual outcome of this is and like you can point to novelizations and you can point to the video game like having a cameo from Bacredi in it and all the rest of it but like ultimately there is no definitive answer to this and I love that as like a piece of ongoing mythology for it it just means that like people can have the same conversations it's similar to the the fucking spinning top in Inception like (laughs) you, you can have an opinion on it but ultimately like the movie will never answer it for you and you just need to kind of like talk it through with people and come to whatever decision you want to come to. Yeah, and I, I think again, like, if they made it today, they probably would just immediately be thinking sequels and insisting certain characters survive and stuff like that, like the people that test well, like, and they would just refuse to allow it to end that way. You have unfortunate stuff like Nurls wanders off 
and is a stun- you know the last time we see him he's alive he is supposed to have been murdered by a, another horrific variant of the thing um but that scene either never got filmed or got cut because of budget stuff so like he is just a loose thread and he's just gone the whole the sections where they are just slowly going insane and like, you know all the dogs have been ki- you know the doc like making a few too many notes smashing up the vehicles you know, killing the dogs. I mean, Blair's slow descent into madness <laughs> is so fascinating. Well, it's not even slow, because he just kind of, like, does a computer thing, and it's just like, the world will end in, like, a yes, year. Yes, exposition, the exposition computer. <laughs> <laughs> and then he just goes, like, well, I'm going to go destroy everything. And yeah, then, he does like, arguably the right thing. It's yeah. just, he's then smashing up a room with an axe while he's going, you think I'm fucking insane? I'll show you insane. I, I, love I love that after they've locked him up in the tool shed, when when he comes to check on him, there's just a noose casually. Exactly what I was, just exactly what I was going to say, and like I think that's the thing that makes me realise like when he gets gone because like when he's begging to be let out and there's mm-hmm. a noose there, but like he's so calm about it, I'm like, oh, you. It's like... clear he intended to kill himself with the yeah. noose, and then the thing took him, and then he no longer wants to kill himself, obviously. But it just that it goes unaddressed, that it is just sitting there, is impeccable. That Mac doesn't even comment on it. And him just being like, I'm fine, I'm fine, and just begging to come out. And that he's that he is more lucid there than than when he got locked up and he seems normal is the sign that he is actually not okay now. And I love, I mean, it's the other thing that makes this so good is that there is no way to tell. Like, they don't, people don't act weirdly. This isn't one of those movies where, like, they don't have some piece of information. Like, you can trick them into, like, outing themselves. Like, this isn't fucking Terminator 2, where, like, yeah. Arnie just kind of goes, like, oh, your parents are dead, kind of thing. Like, <laughs> this is just a thing where, like, the only way they can find out is by, like, tying everyone up and, like, bleeding them. Yeah, and, I mean, and th- I, I, I seen the, the... So the the blood the blood testing scene is incredible, but, like, there is no way around it. You watch that, and clearly the people who made the faculty were just straight up, like... That scene ruled. What if we did that scene and it's like cocaine pens because the cocaine kills the creature or whatever. So everyone has to, you know, snort cocaine and everything. But yeah, the blood, the blood testing scene where like you learn that Mac has just straight up murdered a dude who didn't, who wasn't possessed. He did come at him with a scalpel. Clark is like the one guy who's been like on the edge the entire movie. Like you literally, the first person that we get like confirmation has had like an interaction with an animal in a negative way is when he gets bitten by the dog. Yeah, Um, Yeah, he he is so, you know, he's the red herring. You know, he is so clearly like on the edge of of getting it. He's spending all the time with the dogs. Like you see him. (laughs) So like the the doctor, is, is he like, he puts most of the dogs down but then you see him sort of sitting there with one of the dogs has an axe in its head kind no of so they they kind of like uh and they, they put the dog not not like kill them they just like said to let sedate them i'll sedate them um, and then, yeah and they, then blair's the one that goes in with an axe and murders all the dogs right, like, right, so. right, right. yeah and I've, i i guess on some level you know it makes sense that it would be black because he's the one sabotaging everything and trying to shut this all down and like oh you know Despite his mania, he's probably the one who did the most helpful thing for them all. Um, but then, you know, Clark has that kind of vibe of, like, axe murderer as it is. So seeing him sort of on the floor with a dog with an axe in its head kind of thing, it's like, did he kill it? Um, but he didn't. 
um, and he comes at Mac with a scalpel because five minutes before Mac takes charge of that scene, he's fucking threatening to blow them all up with dynamite, and like Nels is like, "Oh, I cut him loose because he's the fucking thing, man," and like he just forces his way in with a dynamite um, gambit and everything, and to see your protagonist as this kind of crazy man wielding dynamite threatening to kill them all it's very not glamorous again in a way that we talked about how they used to not be afraid to have protagonists like this in the 80s and nowadays everything has to be completely fucking clean and and morally virtuous and everything but yeah mac kind of going (laughs) insane and then yeah that blood testing scene where just one by one who is it who is and who isn't and then fucking the creature popping out of the petri dish like a fucking snake in a can kind of thing yeah (laughs) incredible and i guess we've got to talk about all these creatures because they're insane every fucking one of them i don't know which is the most impressive one it might be the dog the Um, dog is crazy because the dog is like the first big showcase like you see the burnt corpse yeah. A little bit before the dog shows up. Yeah, the fucked up corpse with the two heads and the you know there's, there's sort of some teeth in places there shouldn't be teeth maybe and and all that. But they they test it. All the organs are human organs. They're like, oh, I guess it's just a fucked up dude. I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of shocking how much of the the creature they show you at that that first point. Like, I think I think that's because obviously you get to this point in movies where they're like, let's not show you much of the creature. And obviously, it's all coming from Jaws, isn't it? It's all coming from Jaws, but it's also like Carpenter knows when to do it with like in his movies. Like you watch Halloween, and the movie mm-hmm. kind of like really doesn't want to show you all of Mike Myers like up front. Like it kind of like slow rolls out, and he he knows what's too much and what's too little. And this movie, he's just like, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna show you fucking everything up front. I'm gonna show you what this thing is capable of, and like what happens when you're caught off guard by this thing, and but also show you like how quick it can be. Yeah. In just these like various scenes where it's like the dog just kind of, I, as I said earlier, like peels its face off and then tries to absorb all the other dogs and just like the horrific nature of like watching mm. these dogs be like digested in stomach acid yeah. and, and stuff like that and it is and, it is super fucked up like how quickly it all happened because we're so used to like these plodding slashes and you know you get the tension of when when it's just trying to pass as whatever it's trying to pass as it behaves as normal so you've just got tension but then when it reveals itself it does act really fucking quick and like it 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 is going after all those dogs really quickly like some of them are escaping they're like you know some of them are get some of them get got and like you know this fucking thing's face peeling open and tentacles coming out of it and just how quickly it is a sort of floor to ceiling monstrosity that they just burn to a crisp yeah and i think that's kind of what makes it it gives the movie propulsion because it's like they yeah. now know what they're dealing with. Yeah. Well, they do and they don't because yeah. even after that, they're like, oh, we got it. And I've got to say, Wilfred Brimley's reaction to doing that autopsy is perfect. Where he's like, oh, this is, oh, no, no. <laughs> What's this doing in here? <laughs> um, and just sort of all the, all the just fucked up things with the corpses. And I mean, I, I love, I love. The, the scenes with Bennings are like so fucking creepy where like his his hands are like growing out and then him like sitting there on the floor and he just lets out this like deeply inhuman scream. Yeah, and that, that's the other thing. You know, we talked about the sound and and, and we're, we're talking music and we're talking foley work and stuff, but like the, the noises this creature make are genuinely quite disturbing <laughs> when it's like attempting to mimic human speech but it hasn't managed to assimilate fast enough so it just sounds like this absolute monstrous thing and yeah they just burn him in the ground and everything yeah 
I mean, um, I, I, really, I think the the best one in the movie, the CPR chest is, cavity, yes, yeah. yes, is <laughs> fucking incredible. And it's one of those things where, like, you, I always forget where in the movie it is, and you get so far into this movie, and then I always get this like gleeful feeling. I'm like, oh, we still haven't done fucking chest cavity. <laughs> At this point, and yeah, it's, it's so just... sudden. It's so unexpected. Like he's so good at just faking you out and like, nah, fuck you. Here's the creature. It's just incredible. Like, and that he's looking the other way, kind of thing, and his arms just disappear. Down and it's just funny it. that like the thing has like lied to get to this point where like it's pretending to have a heart attack. <laughs> yeah. To to basically entrap these people, like it's yeah. intelligent and is like figuring out the ways that it can get them into a false yeah. sense of security. And like you're. It almost isn't working because like all of their attention is on testing blood and threatening each other. It's like there's a guy fucking dying in the background, and then it turns out <laughs> that he wasn't, and he just is. Yeah, I think they used a double amputee with prosthetics on to achieve that. Yes, um, and just it is just incredible. And like you know, you have like when it then gets another one, and like. Um, well, it, it's it's the head detaching and becoming oh, the, the head spider on the floor, yes. and then you're like, oh fuck, there's going to be this spider thing that's running around, and then they kill, it immediately. kill it immediately. It's yeah. such it's such a kind of like fucking laying your cards on the table and goes like, we are going to do this for yeah. two seconds. We are going to give you something that is like we've never seen yeah. in movies before, and then we're going to get rid of it because yeah. like that's then, the kind of movie that, that you're watching. But then that that plants that seed that that Mac points out that like you know there could be dozens of these running around like every piece of it could be another whole creature and like you never really know is this a single hive-minded entity that can split itself up into bits is this like a series of life forms that just sort of work in 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 team like are they all completely independent you never know and like you know it's it's just like any one of them could be this thing and you have to completely destroy the body to even have a chance of, of getting rid of it all and you know as we as we said like for it all to come full circle and be the fucking a piece of the dog at the end um, yeah i mean i mean you watch the blood run away when they drop some blood yes, on the floor the little blood droplets just like is that able off. to wolverine itself into like a new body or anything like that <laughs> i i also enjoy mm. that the movie puts no like it doesn't feel like the thing is actively trying to kill them all. No, it wants to get to wider, the wider populace, doesn't well, do, it? Like, does if it, it kills to, them all, it... it's got nothing. It's... But does it want to get to wider populace? It's well, building a spaceship. Is it trying to like leave well, Earth? It, yeah, I mean, sure. Yeah, it is crafting a little, a little, a little craft. Yeah, like did it crash land on Earth by accident? And it's like just been trying to get off again. Yeah, um, and that thing is like, at no point is it the aggressor. Apart from with the dogs, it isn't the aggressor in any of the situations. Hmm. And like, we don't know if like this is just like it just needs to be able to become something to build its spaceship, and then it's going to fuck off and leave. Yeah, potentially, potentially. Because I mean, you know, Mac takes the hypothesis that like now that we've blown up the entire base and, like, you know, there's so little left, it's probably just going to hibernate and wait for rescue and, and do this all again kind of thing. Yeah, it could very well have just been trying to escape and it's just willing to kill if it gets discovered kind of thing, but... I mean, it, it's a movie where, like, everyone's working at the peak of their abilities. Mm. Like, I mean, I mean, special shout-out to Dean Cundy, who who we've talked about multiple times on this podcast before, who, like, in his... This is his third collaboration with 
or fourth collaboration with with Carpenter. They start together on Halloween, and basically he is Carpenter's guy throughout the eighties. Then he shifts over to Zemeckis, and then mm. and then goes on to like do Jurassic Park and stuff like that. And just an all time great special effects cinematographer. Yeah, and like you have to imagine like once you've done this you can do fucking anything. And like yeah. the fact that he's he's the guy that does this and he does the animatronics on like Jurassic Park, like he is a person who innately knows how to mix special effects elements or like animatronic elements yeah. in on screen and shoot them in such a way that makes them compelling and makes them like look like they're in the same fucking space as everything else that's going on. Yeah. Like we we talked about Raiders of the Lost Ark and like you watch Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and that is a movie where like it desperately needed better compositing to make it feel like the special effects elements are actually in the same yeah. place as everything else and, and that's, like, that's the problem we have these days with all this rushed work is it all doesn't feel or you can tell it's not part of the scene because you know people are oh, CGI is why everything's bad movie history is filled with fucking great CGI but when you give people time you can't tell it's there as much and like it feels more like things are interact, you know, the humans are actually interacting with whatever it is. I mean, yeah. I mean, you, you look at a master like James Cameron, mm. and you watch that Avatar two trailer, and you're like, oh, this looks better than every single piece of CGI that we've seen in like the last five years. Yeah. That that blue thing like, is touching like, that water. <laughs> yeah, like exactly, like that, and, and that's what makes it so impressive. And I think yeah. because it looks so good, people have kind of gone like, kind of like blanked out because it's not out there and i don't know if that's like a modern cho- choice that we've made where like we're not chasing photorealism anymore and that's maybe a good thing because it takes yeah. so long and like you're always going to have that uncanny valley but you then end up with this kind of like weird plasticky feeling yeah. spy kids cgi that kind of happens like like doctor strange with the opening in the <laughs> in the alternate dimension it feels fake and it like it yeah. should especially when you compare like to the mirror dimension in that movie and like not to make this into a marvel podcast but like again <laughs> you compare it to to this movie where like Everything is tactile. Everything feels like it's in the same room, yeah. even when it's like stop motion, even when it's like something that's being superimposed in later, like the dog thing. Yeah, at points, like it's still. I, I just, I just constantly come back to those set photos that got out of Infinity War and Endgame, where like the set is tiny, and you just realize like, oh shit, like how depressing are these things to film? Probably. I mean, you know, they're probably. Gen- pretty easy to be honest like you turn up you get put in makeup in, in your costume and you just it's probably quite a short day but like you know like fans are so like shocked to hear that the actors aren't that in you know that Gwyneth Paltrow doesn't give a shit about Marvel it's like because think about what this is actually like on that side of the camera where you were just you're there for a day you have no context because they're filming this thing for seven movies time and you're just in like a tiny corridor or a green screen and you have no idea what's going on and you're just yeah, and they're adding all, they're making the whole movie in post, basically. But then you have this, uh, as a, just a loop back. I can say nothing more impressive than, like, my partner saying, how did they do this? And, like, you, you look at it and you're like, is this just incredible CGI? I was like, no, it's, it's not. It, it's, it's all practical, I think. So, um, I'm going to finish off with yeah. two, two questions for you. Go for it. Because I feel like we've kind of like exhausted everything that there is to say. Yeah, about I, I, I genuinely, I don't have all I can say is go look at the fucking thing. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, again, this is one of my top ten movies of all time. I, mm. I fucking adore this thing. So, question one: Do you think one or both of them are the thing at the end of the movie? Um, um, what is your take on that kind of like final sequence? I don't think either of them are the thing. I think they are just. I think they just freeze to death as humans. Personally, I think the thing is it's out there somewhere. We know there's a cutscene where it gets gnarls and stuff like that. But I think when they're sitting there, they don't 
neither of them is the thing, personally. Okay. Um, second question. If we were to cover another Carmelta movie from the 80s, <laughs> what would your choice have been? Because I feel like, because that's like the impossible question. It's mm. like, there are directors that we've got on this list where it's like, there are one or two options. Yeah. Like, like Zemeckis, who, spoilers, will be covered on this podcast, there are two options. We either do Back to the Future or we do Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which one we've come down on, I'm not going to say. Mm-hmm. But like, I mean, for Carpenter, there, there, there it, there's like six options. Yeah, well, that's the thing. There's six options, but there's one option. Is the thing like yes. the, the thing stands so high above, and then the rest is all just really good. I am a sucker for Escape from New York. I wouldn't push for it to be the one. I think I would probably go for Big Trouble in Little China. But like, I, I, just... I thought that was the, that's the one that feels like it's most like in your aesthetic wheelhouse. Yeah. Is, is Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> Uh, um, but you know, I, I have a soft spot for They Live. And, and, I mean, They Live is just a great political commentary movie, yeah. and again, is the kind of the ultimate one. Like, They Live is a very different movie if it stars Kurt Russell rather than Roddy Piper. <laughs> sure. um, what about you? We, is, are you are you a Fog guy? I, mean, I, I I I do I do love the Fog, but now I'm Prince of Darkness. Prince, Prince of Darkness of is my like the the second part of the Apocalypse trilogy. I think it's the three Apocalypse trilogy movies from Carpenter are like my favorite thing that he's done. Yeah, it's the thing in the mouth of madness and and Prince of Darkness. Prince of Darkness is like really scuzzy, really cheap, three million dollars. Um, I, I <laughs> hell of a poster it. too. Hell of a poster. Uh, <laughs> it, and, and, and if you if you know my taste in things, it does exactly the kind of stuff that I like. Where it kind of like it's it's science plus religion mixed together to make just a what if Satan? Mm, <laughs> what yeah. if Satan was a liquid? Um, <laughs> These are the questions that must be answered. It's, it fucking rules. It obviously reunites Carpenter with um with Donald Pleasant again after Halloween. Yeah. Who um, he he wanted him to be in this movie in Wilfred Brimley's role, but I think he was deemed too famous or, or too big of a presence. I mean, yeah, what more is there to say? The thing I mean, it, is it, it, it's sad, <laughs> sad. We mentioned it earlier that it's sad that Carpenter's kind of like retired and not doing much, especially yeah. when we're in this era where people like Blumhouse and A24 mm-hmm. are throwing out kind of like $5 million, $10 million budgets to people to make horror movies. Yeah. And you're like, how on earth hasn't Carpenter... Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, It doesn't have to be Alien or Predator, but just like, how has no one just written him a check to just come and just flex on modern horror, modern sci-fi, like, to, to get him to do a Cloverfield movie or a, a whatever it has to be. Like his own original thing is probably his preference rather I mean, than yeah, working with IP. Like, but... You have you have Blumhouse who are literally just throwing out fucking mm. shit everywhere and I'm just like, <laughs> I I would kill to see him do just whatever the fuck he wants to do. And yeah. I, I Give know him the Alex Garland deal, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know at this point that he's, like, done. He hates, like, commercial, yeah, commercial know, filmmaking. Yeah. He hates all this kind of stuff. But, like, he he obviously likes money. <laughs> he does, he does. For him, for him to, like, just keep coming back to Halloween, like, he is he is still a, a producer and a composer on the, the Halloween, like, Halloween, mm. Halloween Kills, Halloween Ends. Yeah. Um, God, there's so many of those fucking things now. Oh, the Halloween, the Halloween timeline is incredible. Like, if we ever I do the seventies, I would push for Halloween. Yeah, I would, I would do Halloween, and we yeah. would have to do a big deep dive into how that movie's got like three branching timelines mm-hmm. and a, and a like reboot spin-off sequel series. Yeah, <sighs> but that is not this day. Um, that is not this day. We this don't was know. The thing. If, yes, this was the thing. Um, we may never do the seventies. If we do, I promise you, it will be interesting. Uh, but speaking of. Interesting, I suppose. Next week we're doing Blade Runner. 
Which... Oh my god, what? I said earlier we weren't ever covering it. I know, I know. And I think we even said when we did Indiana Jones something about Blade Runner. Um, I'm going to preface by saying I have never been the world's biggest fan of Blade Runner, so set your expectations accordingly. Um, I think it will be an interesting one to talk about, though. It will be a Ben heavy lifting episode. Of course, but which are normally the best ones. But, like, <laughs> although I've had a tremendous time talking about the thing. But, yeah, I just... Yeah, I think it's a very interesting movie uh, to to discuss historically, uh, influentially. I just have never been. It's one of those where it's got this huge, huge following, and I'm like, ah. But I obviously put it on the list, so I, I want to talk about it. But I just think it's going to be an interesting episode. But that is next week. Uh, this was this week. This was the thing. I have been Matt Watts. I've been joined by Ben Phillips, who is going to answer for us our final question of the episode. Will there be movies? <laughs> Jesus fuck. <laughs> Bye everyone. I'm never asking you the question again. <laughs>